Welcome to the One Mic, One Voice show, building the collective conscience. Show that's created to give space where your voice, ideas, and informed opinions can be heard, appreciated, and debated. I am Michael Eric Owens. Folks, uh, this is going to be a rebroadcasting, or I should say the first broadcast of a conversation that I did along in um, partnership with the Ralph Ellison Foundation. And many of you know that I am the founder and executive director of the Ralph Ellison Foundation. And so we did a conversation uh, this past week um, titled, Is America Changing? And it's in the light bulb room, and you will hear this being explained. It's one of our programs, but we had Professor Danae Johnson on there. She is the Constant Baker Motley Professor of Law at Oklahoma City University. We had Jamar Rahming. He is Executive Director of Wilmington Public Libraries in Wilmington, Delaware. We also had uh, Michael Kozark. He's the CEO of Kozark Consultant Group, and he is actually in Kansas. And so... Um, I want you to take a listen to this this very robust discussion that was not only with them, but it was with a, a Zoom audience. And so uh, very deep, I think, very enlightening. So take a take a listen and, and please always subscribe, share and provide your feedback. Welcome to the In the Light Bulb Room series sponsored by the Ralph Ellison Foundation. In the Light Bulb Room is a series of conversational forums on race and social issues. It was first launched in 2014. Uh, it takes the central motif from Ralph Ellison's novel, Invisible Man. Confronted by racism and disillusionment, the book's narrator retreats underground to tell his story. He turns his basement bunker into a space of memory, reflection, healing, experimentation, and illumination with regards to truth about himself in the society in which he lives. To learn more about the Ralph Ellison Foundation, its programming, and to volunteer, we always love that, please visit our website at ralphellisonfoundation.org. Now, some of the ground rules tonight in the light bulb room, we want everyone to participate. It is a conversation. But however, in this form, we ask that you make your, you, you chat in your comments as well as questions that we can propose to the panelists or even your thoughts on anything that we're talking about here tonight. And this is our, our really our first online official light bulb room. We've done some conversations, but this is official. So we had to go out and get the best of the best. <laughs> we, uh, we have a distinguished panel tonight, beginning with my, my good friend, uh, professor Danae Johnson, who is the Constance Baker Motley Professor of Law at Oklahoma City University. And she um, has all has been on the, the light bulb. I've dragged her into a lot of things. Just let me say that. And she has participated. And, and, and I always uh, love her, her outlook on uh, things happening in the world. Uh, also, we have with us the executive director of the Wilmington Public Library. He's in Delaware, 
and uh, Jamar Rami, uh, a good friend of mine, uh, a scholar as well, and, and one that is doing, if you haven't checked out the Wilmington Public Library in the, in the amazing programs, just, Jamar, just, just talk about a little bit about who, who you've had just as recently uh, this year in some of your programming. Well, we've had, beginning of, of this year, we had LeVar Burton, we had Dr. Cornell West, uh, we had Terry McMillan, we had Kadir Nelson, we had Bakari Sellers, um, we had John Berry, who wrote the, the Spanish Flu, um, the book on the Great Influenza. Um, let's see here. Uh, we've had Michael Twitty. Um, we had Rakim. Uh, so we've had a, we've had we've had very you know you know we've had versatile programming. I mean we're we're a small urban city, and we have people in our city who've never who've never even been to Philadelphia, which is forty minutes away. So we do our best to to bring the world to them. And uh, as you can tell, he's had some, <laughs> not just some uh, uh, average folks. He's had some some culture creators. Uh, at, at throughout his uh, programming, and we appreciate that. And then also my, my good friend, uh, he is the CEO or, of uh, Cozart uh, Consulting Group. He's an educator, Michael Cozart. He's an educator, good friend of mine. He's also, um, you know, uh, Michael is a guy that I think um, has been with some of the most important people in black politics uh, in uh, the state of Oklahoma, I was sad to see him go and to take his services of uh, other places, but clearly he continues to make an imprint on not just black culture, but American culture. So we really appreciate um, all three of you being here with us um, tonight. And also, um, so what we, um, again, um, in the light bulb room, uh, on the panel, Professor Johnson, Jamal Raming, and Michael Kozart. And we want, we, we want to take a couple of, um, of uh, quotes from, from Ellison, uh, and I'm going to read these. Both of these are from Invisible Man. So we want to frame our conversation because we really believe that Ellison, although he's no longer with us, was a man before his time. And clearly... Ellison was one of those unique individuals who could pierce through time and, and write about things that were not only relevant in his day, but they are truly relevant today. And this is really the beginning of, of the novel. And Ellison says, I quote, I am an invisible man. No, I am not a spook like those who haunted Edgar Allan Poe, nor am I one of your Hollywood movie ectoplasms. I'm a man of substance, of flesh and bones, fiber and liquid. And I might even be said to possess a mind. I am invisible, understand, simply because people refuse to see me. Like the bodyless heads you see sometimes in circus sideshows, it is though I have been surrounded by mirrors of hard, distorted glass. When they approach me, they see only my surroundings themselves or figments of their own imagination. Indeed, everything and anything except me. Now, the historical problem of invincibility, the ongoing problem of black and brown racism, discrimination, 
police brutality, profiling, a lack of understanding regarding black history, i.e. slavery, convict leasing, segregation and Jim Crow, civil rights and mass incarceration. So when we look at our country today and we see uh, all of these challenges that we have and we've seen a summer of protests, um, some people will say America is changing. That that in, in the vis- invisibility of uh, black and brown people is something that is fading away. Well, I want to, first of all, start with Professor Johnson. Is America really changing? It's such a meaningful question right now, and many people would suggest to you that, yes, America is changing. Um, my position is a little bit different. I'm not sure that we are changing um, as much as we have an opportunity to change. I think we have been in this exact same position before. I feel like our system is very cyclical, um, but the cycles are lengthy. So there are young people who don't realize we've been here before, and there are people older than I who feel like, here we go again. So we're caught in a space where we could change, but we'd have to talk about what change means. So I feel like we've been at this intersection before, and we're here again. So I'm not sure that we make the correct move at this intersection, or if we just decide to stay here, um, as we've done in the past. So I can't really say that America is changing. I, I think we're at an, a unique inflection point where we could change, but we have to define the change. Brother Michael? Is America changing? So let's go back to the purpose and what would the change be? You know, what, we, what uh, is America changing as far as race? Um, the current occupier uh, of, of the White House um, fought to dis, uh, fought to end training that deals with racism. So, is America changing? <laughs> I mean, I, I, like you said, I think I think we are at an intersection. I think we're at a very, very inner, very, very interesting space. Uh, is there? Could we change? I think we could. But it's like that that whole regime is trying to keep things the way they are, keep us in a space. Um, and and how do you how do you keep us in a space? You fight us mentally, physically, emotionally. And then you have this pandemic, this national pandemic that has where um, I, I know about probably about 200 deaths or so, 200,000 deaths or so, we were like 60% of those deaths. And so we look at the impact and how that destroy, how that impacts families and communities and, um, you know, but I think we are at an interesting space because I, I think we're right at the precipice of change. Um, and, and we can get there later, but, you know, 
when you fight to keep things the way they are. I'll, I'll pause. You know, I'm I'm, I'm wondering, uh, Jamar, as you approach this question too, um, is there a level of optimism for change? So, first of all, Jamar, is is America changing? Yes, I think I I definitely think America. You know, I think America is is changing. I think that when we look, you know, we look at a post civil rights movement. I mean, we we had we had reached a we had reached an era in American history to where it was, you know, culturally and, and socially unacceptable um, to be to be racist. I mean, you could be, you know, you could be a subtle racist, you could be a covert racist. But I think that, you know, with the with four years of the Trump administration, and we see at what is materialized um, with 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 the the march that took place in Washington and 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 um, the the canonization of the works of the proud boys and the white supremacists. Um, I think that we are, I think that we're embarking upon um, an era to era of American history to where it, it is becoming um, socially and politically uh, acceptable um, to condone racism. Um, I think that we, you know, you look at, you look at, at, at 2016, I mean, we were, we were definitely, I think that we can all, Hopefully, we can all agree that there's a dialectical relationship between um, Donald Trump support, Donald Trump administration, and and racism. And when we go back to 2016, um, you know, we were all astonished when he won because we were like, well, how, you know, how could this man hit the horizon and win? But we found that there were a lot of people that um, that supported him and went to the polls and voted for him. But when they when they were asked who they were supporting, I mean, they were ashamed to say, you know, I'm, I'm casting a vote for Donald Trump. But in 2020, um, the cards have cards have turned. People who people who who support Donald Trump um, were very vociferous um, and very um, emphatic in their pronouncements, and they weren't that way in 20, 2016. So. Is America changing? Yes, it's it's changing for the worst. It's it's changing in a way that you know racism is is becoming socially and politically um, acceptable to where there were people who are racist, but they they didn't they didn't they didn't pronounce it. They weren't vocal about it. That's an interesting. Go ahead, go ahead, Michael. I would think that it's not changing because it's always been socially and politically acceptable. It's been, it's, it's, it's racism is systemic. It's an every, it's an every fiber of everything that we know. It's in our education system. It's in our, it's in our churches. It's in political system. It's in the judicial system. Uh, it, it's, it's in Medicaid. It's in the medical. It's in everything that we know. So I don't, I don't, I, I think it's, it's always been there. It's it's always been on the horizon. And um, but can it change? See, I, I think what happened with this election, where you have um, where you have president president elect Biden, uh, Vice President uh, Harris, I think some things can really change. 
because I, I, I you know, I, I believe that there's a code, and I think I believe that there's a code that these men must abide by, and I think I think President Biden will 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 challenge that code, just like President Trump challenged the code. He didn't follow the rules. I think I think Biden will will challenge the code in in a good way for all. Mm-hmm. So that can that can bring forth a change. Um, uh, that can really bring forth some change. Um, so, but I, I think I think it's always been acceptable. It, it, and it's always racism has always been acceptable. It's been in every it's 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 been in everything that we know. I think it, it, it there's a, a, a twist and a connection between what Michael is saying and what Jamar is saying. This idea that Jamar puts forth that we are changing in a non-progressive way. And I think what Michael says is systemic racism, that it is there. It's similar to this, and this is a silly example. I am who I am, and I believe what I believe. But some I might have felt in the past a pressure to dye my hair. So I might look different, I might change the exterior, but inside it didn't change who I am because I am who I am. And now under a more open regime, I don't feel the pressure to dye my hair. I can let all the wild thoughts come out. So it is, the question is, am I changing or have I just changed how I appear and perhaps interact with others? That becomes this question about, is it systemic racism, which I agree with Michael, it has always been there, versus how open we are to sharing um, our our truth, how loud we want to be with it. And I think people have been allowed to be very loud um, with their truth or their ability to carry racist notions over the last four years. Yeah, that's sort of been a sort of license, right, given to be um, overtly um, out there and with systemic racism that is 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 there. That's the foundational, right, but can also be unspoken. And um, it, it, it works as a machine works. Uh, but one day the machine starts to scream <laughs> and then you understand <laughs> that there's something different going on inside of it. And I think that's what we've seen in, and I, and I think it's interesting too, this idea that Jamar kind of brought up is we're changing. Yes, we may be changing, but we're changing and going maybe in the wrong direction. And I think that tension between uh, as, as professor Johnson talked about what, you know, what does that change look like? And so that change is moving. And, you know, throughout history, when we talk about movements, there's always counter movements that that transpire. And so we see that tension today. And I, I, I guess, you know, while you all of you were talking, this question came to mind. Um, do you feel that um, that, you know, those outside of the black and brown communities and I and I'm not just talking black folks, I'm talking Latinx, I'm talking native folk. Um, does white America, right, really understand those stories, those histories? And if they don't know those stories, those histories, how can we possibly change? 
Professor? I think they don't know those stories. And we don't know those stories. Black, brown, red, yellow people, we don't know those stories. So we are an entire group of people without knowledge of all of the meaningful stories. And many of us have been taught that we don't talk about race. Mm. And many of us have been taught that you tell your stories to your in-group, not to the people who are outsiders. That allows people to deny the stories exist. Mm. That allows us to get it wrong as brown and black people. We get it wrong quite often. It also does not allow voice and agency to white people who have been on the right side throughout history. There have been abolitionists. There were people who partnered with us during the civil rights movement. But because we are people who don't tell stories and don't know history, we don't know about that partnership that can and has existed. We don't know about our own frailty and strength because we don't tell the stories. So nobody knows the stories. Jamar. Wow. Well, that's a, that's a pretty, you know, pretty heavy, you know, um, heavy question. I think, I think, I think the problem, I think the problem goes when it goes to, you know, when we're talking about white people and what they understand, I think that, I think that what, what is derailing our efforts is, is that as far as people of color, we're, we are, we are so polarized and we have our own internal issues. You know, when you look at this last presidential election, I mean, you had, you had a remnant of, of, you know, black folks that supported president Trump and they denied that systemic and institutionalized racism um, exists that, you know, that, that, that black, that, that black and brown people are, are stuck in this victim mentality. Uh, and then you have, you know, you have pop culture and, and, you know, and, and celebrities that hit the forefront. Um, and so I think that, I think that the, I think that the, the polarization within the black and brown communities, I think that that hinders, um, you, you, you know, white people from understanding um, our plight, our cause, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that if there's any kind of lasting change, we're going to have to develop some, some unity and some collective social consciousness, um, within, within, within black and brown, um, within black and brown communities. And I think that we also have to, um, the difference between, you know, the black lives matter movement, I think in the civil rights movement is that the civil rights movement, uh, was replete with with scholars and there was there was intellectual you know rigor kind of behind it with black lives matter movement i mean we can't there's not one you know leadership has been lacking um you have you know people that will see a video that goes viral and they become outraged and alarmed and they hit the streets um, rightly so, but when I went to a couple of the protests, I mean, I would ask some of the younger people, well, you know, you know, why, what are you out here for? Why are you out here? And I can tell you out of the 10 people that I asked, I mean, half, over half of them could not articulate, could not articulate what the movement was about and why they were out there. So the two things that I would have to say is that there needs to be some collective unity 
and there needs to be some kind of installation of um, intellectual rigor in this movement. And uh, we have a comment, Michael, before you from Kathy that says, my 15-year-old son, word sister, <laughs> we are learning the stories. School and the media has hidden the stories from us. And that's that's so profound for a 15-year-old to to acknowledge that. And, and obviously, um, this uh, son is getting... Uh, his information from other other sources, which is um, definitely what we have to do if we truly want to know the story. Uh, Michael? Uh, man, about seven, eight months ago, I went to a training that, and, and I've been a conscience, I've been conscious and woke. Uh, I've been, I went to a training about seven or eight months ago, not trying to throw any plugs, uh, but it was it was with REI, the Racial Equity Institute. I went to this training, and it it I was floored. Um, the training there were probably uh, there were probably 75, 80 people in this classroom. Well, I'll take the back. This was so. This was probably November, about a year ago. I'm sorry, because it was before COVID. Um, mixed room, and um, mixed room, and we all, everybody shared their stories. They went to this training, and they talked about racism. Talked about, um, I mean, and they talked about real issues. And a lot of times, we, when we talk about racism, we we, we keep it surface level or we keep it correct. We keep it within a safe confine. And they went on a deep dive and it, it, it was so enlightening to everyone in there because they talked, they talked about real issues and you could look around in the room and the white people in the room, there were, there were some white people in the room that were like, okay, wow. There were a couple in the room that was like, I looked at, and, and this is me, my interpretation, that was like, okay, you know, there were black people in the room that were like, whoa, there were Asians in the room, there were Hispanics in the room. I mean, and when I say, but the training was so deep and so rich that you walked away with another, you, you walked through, one of the questions um you know, and they talked about how racism happened. I mean, we all know racism is systemic. They talk, they they go. It, it went on a deeper dive, because again, it, a lot of times when we talk about racism, we keep it at a at a surface level. We don't go really, really deep. How we don't go how to how deep. We don't go into uh, how one thing impacts another, and how it impacts another, and how it impacts another. But the it and and it was just literally mind boggling. Um. I, and 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 it, and it was uncomfortable. At the end, they at the end we did we they 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 opened it and said, so how do you feel? Um, one of the one of the one of there was a response that um, there was a response from a gentleman, and so they they, they broke it down. They asked you know individual asked people by ethnicity, how, what what do you think? What do you feel? Come, you know, and so the group of the white the, the responses from the white group was small. 
responses from the Hispanic group were more. Responses from the black group were like two page, two three pages. And there was a response where this gentleman said, yeah, I can have everything on my list and your list too. And it was like, you know, so I think there has to be training that, that really that really goes not just surface level because we do because if when you looked at when you looked at the when you looked at the protests um, uh, from from the lynch from the public execution or lynching of George Floyd and the the mark, the, the protests that proceeded um, I don't know about in Oklahoma City or I don't know about in Delaware but I know like in Kansas City that after a, after three four weeks the majority of the people that were out there were protesting did not look like me. And so those, we, we do have allies. And, I, and, and so, and, you know, so it, it's, but there has to be proper training. You know, we don't even, I, I, you know, I lived in Oklahoma City 20 years, um, maybe 10 years ago, they did a, 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 a video on the Tulsa massacre. I'd hate to call it a riot because it wasn't a, it wasn't a, it wasn't a riot. It was a massacre. And there was a there was an instructor, a professor at a at a who's 70, 80 years old in Oklahoma, and she said I had never heard of this. She worked at a historically black college. Oh. I'd never. She said I'd never heard of. I've never heard about this. And so there have been so many stories. I mean that there was the the red like thing 1919. They call it the red summer. Where it wasn't just Tulsa, it was all across the country, destroying strong communities, keeping us in our place. So when the president says we want to we want to stop this training, it's 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 because we don't want things to change. I'll, I'll step back. And and I think you make a, a a valid point when you when you highlight the need to educate people on these stories and on this history because Ellison, what he's talking about is, is these stories being invisible, the people of these stories being invisible and, and, and there's no way to see it unless you learn about it, unless you embrace it. And that's deeply painful, mm. deeply painful in the country. I mean, I like when, when, when Dr. West talks about America being a blues nation, uh, you know, or in having blues people, black people that have had these experiences of deep pain, deep sorrow. And now a nation is learning from a blues people. Right. Um, but the challenge goes in how do we educate those? And even this brings in and this is going to be a tough question. But in the light bulb room, we we tackle the tough questions. And so we see this, and Michael, you alluded to this. We 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 saw the protests, and it was it was made up of all types of people. And a lot of our white brothers and sisters hit the streets, and um, and they put their lives on the line, uh, and they were outraged. And so we have this this um, thing called being woke now. You know, everybody's woke, and uh, I really don't like that that phrase I just I that that word I, I don't you know I think enlightened is better but uh that's just my preference um but is this is is this a true awakening 
or is this a fad? Is it something that is going to pass and we're right back to where we started? Or, 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 or let me say this. Can you, can you sustain wokeness without knowing the people that have awakened you? Anyone? Again, I think you have to go back to can can you sustain the the wokeness, the consciousness, the awareness? I think it can't be, but there has to be. I mean, you really have to deal with the training, the education. I, I did a college tour, and you know, I used to do college tours, and I took a group of students to. We went to visit, we did HBCU tours, and then we would do cultural sites. So we went to Houston. We went to the Jewish, it was the Jewish center. And when you walk in, the, when we walked in the center and plastered on all of the walls was a message, we'll never forget. Hmm. Which means they shared the stories generation to generation, passed it down generation to generation to generation. So young Jewish, young Jewish kids knew about the Holocaust. They knew about they knew about it. We've had a Holocaust, and um, we've we arrived sixties. You know, we got some fifties, sixties, some some doors open, or probably more sixties, and, and we moved from our little uh, huts. I don't want to say huts. I, we moved from our community. Well, and I would probably say we had community back in the 60s. We moved from our communities to other communities, and our children never went back or didn't know. And then we went. Then we moved further out, and then we forgot. That, so there was there was not a passing down of information. There was not a passing down of history, and so. You know, so our children don't know of the stories um, of what happened, you know, to their grandparents. One of the places that we went to visit in Little Rock, Arkansas, there was a picture of a gentleman, George McCoughlin, and I, and I might be pronouncing his name wrong, but I covered, I would cover, and so I would take that student and say, listen, look at this picture. And there was a picture in this picture. Um, in this picture, um, it, there was a classroom out. There was a classroom of white students, and there was a black man sitting outside the classroom, leaning in, trying to hear the lesson because he was not allowed into the classroom. So I would cover up the picture, and I would cover up the location. And so I would ask the students, where do you think this was? And so we're in Arkansas, so they're thinking Little Rock or, or Georgia or Alabama. I moved my hand, and it says Oklahoma. So, I, you know, we have to pass down this information to our, to our children. We have to share it not just to our children. We have to share it in all communities. And when we do that, then there is a more conscious awareness or uh, quote-unquote awakening of all people, not just black and brown people, and not just black people or brown people, um, but all people. 
And no, um, I would agree. It's difficult to maintain what what we want to call wokeness, right? It's difficult to maintain wokeness and to move from a fad to what we would hope would be an integration of knowledge, breeding empathy, and all of those things. It's difficult to maintain without education, experience, and exposure. So people who want to be woke, they can gain education, experience, and exposure, but they have to be a seeker in all of this. And I think something else that Michael mentioned, as a parent, how we pass these stories on, it is difficult for African-Americans because the story has so much pain. And we have allowed our story to be homogenized. We've allowed our story to begin with slavery as opposed to discussing a story before that. And when we discuss slavery, because it is so ugly and brutal and horrific, we use the word slavery instead of saying there was a period of torture, rape, lynching. We, We don't go through what slavery meant. So somehow we've used the word slavery and it don't sound so bad. We don't explain what that means and what the experience was. And in some ways, as a parent, it's difficult to share all of that because you also want to inspire hope against the odds. So there's a lot that lies in the balance. Jamar? Well, I think um, I, I, I agree with everything that that, that our colleagues here have said here on the on the panel. I think I think one thing that we can, when looking at wokeness and how to sustain wokeness, I think that I think that the best thing that which I think you know when you think about when you think about Motown, you know you think about the 1960s. I mean, Motown was one of the few things that you know that that black and white people um, agreed agreed upon. And so I think that in order to sustain wokeness, um, I think that we have to derail this this movement of of, of marginalizing um, and um, obliterating the, the humanities. You know, you look at the last the last decade um, in the education arena. There's been this emphasis on on STEM on on the, on the math and sciences, and they have eradicated the humanities. And it's through humanities and art to where we we take you know we take very big horrific things like slavery and, and racism and the Holocaust and when we, when we when we look at art art is what is what humanizes it and makes and makes those those type of things um, palatable um, for the for the for the unconscious you know um, you, you, you know you look at Billie Holiday and Strange Fruit I mean. What a way to understand the the the, the, the impact of, of 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 lynching, and um and and racism and and the African American experience, um in the rural South. And so I think that you look at the Trump administration. I mean, there was a, there was a big political movement to uh, do away with the uh, um the national endowment of of humanities. I mean, the, the humanities. I mean, art is you it's utilitarian. It's it's di- di- didactic. Um, it, it, those are those are tools that will help people, you know, become more conscious um, to sustain wokeness. So I think that I think that we definitely need to cr- ignite a revolution um, that involves um, 
you know, bringing back, bringing back the, the arts, celebrating the arts. Um, and another thing about, you know, you know, being woke is that, you know, everybody, you know, everybody, you know, with, with social media, everybody has a, has a platform. Everybody wants a, a mantle. They want a voice. They want a platform, but they don't want a sackcloth. They don't want to do um, hard work. And so part of being woke is, is not tweeting or getting on social media and, 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 and posting mimes or posting quotes about, you know, famous people. Um, being woke has, has work behind it. And people don't want to do, people don't want to, to work. And so every, and so my challenge is everybody that, that, that considers themselves woke, you know, my question to you is, is what, what kind of work are you doing to sustain wokeness? I think those are are great points. Um, And uh, I want to come back to some of those. Uh, We have a couple comments. Uh, Sarah says here, how do we as a society address, tackle the deeper issues of racism? Do we start in early school years and truly teach proper history? Do we dive into implicit biases? Do we stand up and confront every case and every incident where we encounter racism? I'm confident that the answer is responding yes to all of these, but who do we partner with when we make change? So keep that in mind. Another comment, uh, when you talk about, this is uh, Renee, when um, when you talk about trauma, it seems to be okay for the transmission of trauma from Jewish people and it seems to be okay for indigenous people to talk about historical trauma. There has been an intentional sizing of the historical and transmission of trauma of black people um, like it, like it become a, a seeker. Um, and I, and I, and, and, and I, this, and all three of you have hit on this, this point that I've been trying to emphasize and the foundation has trying to been emphasized is that it's not enough to protest. It's not enough to be outraged. Uh, I tell people, you know, black folks been protesting and outraged for generations. It's not enough. If you truly want to be in this struggle, which it is, you got to learn. You got to be aware of, of the condition, the historical journey through which uh, black and brown people have come through this country, the challenges. And I think only by having that knowledge can you, can you be a, a contributor and also you can sustain yourself in this because we know it's, it's much deeper and wider and longer than a protest, than a summer. This is generational work. And uh, I am, my concern is, uh, what does it say? The old saying, don't bite off more than you can chew. I think some folks have just, they, they bit off, but it's too much. They can't chew it because now something's required of you. And so how do we, um, how, how, how do we get that point across to them the necessity of truly understanding and taking a deep dive? Or is that even our responsibility? Professor Johnson, I want to hear from you first because you brought up seeker. You know, that's what they have to be. Can you motivate someone to seek or do you? I mean, the good book says seek and ye shall find, right? That's on the individual. So I'm saying, so is it even our responsibility? Because people say to me, well, Michael, what should I do? (laughs) 
<laughs> is that my responsibility? Can you speak to that for a moment? So when someone says, what should I do, Michael? It is your responsibility, okay? As somebody who finds himself to be a seeker, it is indeed your responsibility. You have to explain to somebody how they can go about becoming a seeker, what it is to be a seeker, and what is the value of being a seeker, how being a seeker makes you stronger in what you do. So I think, yes, we have a responsibility, but I also think we sh we, we have to recognize that lots of movements, when they are grassroots movements, they come from the frustration of people who mm -hmm. feel many times that they have tried to express themselves and no one has listened. Mm -hmm. They have tried to be a part of the system, but they've been turned away. So we have to be gracious and understanding of people who are engaged in a grassroots movement who really don't know what else to do. We've not, as a society, as people with privilege, explained steps that could be beneficial. Because every time you give a black or brown person a list of steps, do these three things. Before we can finish those damn three things, somebody done added a fourth thing. Somebody told you that the third thing, they have changed it, and now it's a two-year internship you got to do someplace else. It's always something else, and that continues this frustration that people feel in a deep and hopeless kind of way. So we got to help everybody figure out how to be a seeker, how to know themselves and how to know the systems, how to know how to work to change these things. Michael. Deep dive. So I, I think we've been told, we've been given history uh, and a false narrative of history for so long that now we have to tell, be able to tell our own story. Um, if you look at, if you look at the image of Jesus and if you look at the image of Jesus, and you go back to, to particularly to civil rights era, and you see the Lord's Supper and Jesus and, and the, the apostles, Jesus was painted an image of white. So going back to the cycle image, the, the change in images of psychological slavery, Dr. Naimai Barr. Mm. And so what that did was that that we know that that we know that that's not actually true that, that, that those that, was, that image was changed to keep us in a in psychological slavery and so because we see Jesus or God is white then and then the you know so we know all of but now but now that we know that we have to so and so I think that's one of the keys to destroying racism change the image of Jesus everywhere and what that does is that 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 brings down um, that um, high that, that high level that 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 will bring down um, that that will that will that will take that will that will chop this I'm better than you image 
and then that will bring up that will that will in, in, uh, bring about some self-esteem, some awareness of who we are. So we don't know. We've been told a lie for so long that we don't know who we are. Hmm. Go back to the Bible. In the Bible, God made Adam and Eve. We were all made in the image of God. Hmm. But and so if we realize that we were all made in the image of God, black, white, male, female, then that would that would end this psychological that that those are some things that could end the psychological slavery. But we're two thousand we're in twenty twenty and we still have images of a a, a a savior that looks with blue eyes, blonde hair, and that looks looks doesn't off. look like doesn't look like us, right? But it's not a true image. Yeah. And and yeah. the man looks frail. He looks like a soft man. <laughs> let's let's go back to the true image of what it is. And I and, and I that think brings yeah. about, that brings about that brings about a change where people can start identifying with I am like that. That ends that truly ends. Well, I, I won't say that's that's that in itself truly ends, but th- that brings about some equal some equality, some true equality in for for people. You know, uh, and then we we, we got to tell our own story. We can't because they're not putting it in the books. We got to be able to tell our own story and pass it down. That we we come from kings and we come from queens, like you said. It didn't just start from slavery. That I mean, when you look at at, at the, the the ancient Egyptians and how they were able to build pyramids without rulers and not how when, when we know our history and who we are that that we're kings and queens. That brings about that brings that that starts that makes you think differently. And we've I, been we've been we've been fed lives too long. And, and I think you you speak to where I want to segue in this idea of white supremacy because clearly, the image of uh, of a white savior is reflection of a, of a society, I think, ruled by white supremacy. When white is the normal, and everything else is uh, not just different but deficient. And Renee has a comment. She said, "I like it. Change the image of Jesus. How does this intersect with Ralph Ellison?" Well, clearly, clearly Ellison, and in our context of tonight, talking about. Uh, being invisible uh, intersects because Ellison is saying we need to see things as they really are. Um, Not as we have been taught, but as they truly exist. My, I could be invisible simply because of the stereotypes that's placed upon me because you don't see me. You see the stereotypes. So if I become visible to you, then you see me. You don't see, well, I'm a black guy and my, my, I got a ball cap on and, and now I'm a thug, right? You, that's, you know, I, I did something with um, a painting with uh, Tekende, uh, uh, Kintende Wade um, with his, one of his paintings at, um, at the historical um, museum uh, downtown I was a panelist, and uh, one of his paintings was Napoleon leaping over the Alps. And um, here's this this uh, black guy on this horse. You know, he he he's dressed in his urban gear, 
and everybody was saying, and, and the majority of the audience was white, and they said, you know, this, this is a beautiful painting. It's amazing, um, Katende Wiley. And, and I said to them, what if we remove that black guy from that painting and you were walking down the street and he was approaching you, would you see his beauty? Right? He, in that painting, he became visible to them. Right? That was their frame of reference. Outside of that painting, you know, his ball cap, his, his pants is sagging. And what does he represent? He was invisible. That's how that intersection happens. And so we are in a culture where we've, again, again, you know, uh, Professor Johnson, you talked about earlier how we have been at this point before. And this is a point where, you know, with Reconstruction and blacks were in politics and and uh, we had the rise of the uh, KKK. We had the rise, the birth of white supremacy. And what we've seen here over the course of the last four years is an increase in white supremacy in our society, not just the representation, but the very idea of superiority and inferiority, even dealing with immigration, um, we find this. So how do we, how do we begin to address and deal with white supremacy in America, in, the, in this new moment that we have, Professor? So one of the things that you said, Michael, that I want to, to just give one comment to, you said that we had this rise of the KKK, which was the beginning of this white supremacy kind of thing. And I had a conversation with a friend of mine who's a Native woman, and she said, you know, Danae, I'm with you all, but there's something y'all keep messing up. And I said, well, what is it? She said, that was not the start of white supremacy. Mm. That white people got here and began to dominate us as Native people, and that predates massed African-American people, people from Africa being introduced to the Americas. So she wanted me to be very aware of that. So I think that that's something for us to, to really consider where we want to say white supremacy started and what are the foundations of white supremacy as we talk about how we dismantle it. In many ways, white supremacy in the Americas predates black slavery. Mm. What does that mean, right? So I, I think that that's important to kind of conceptualize. Um, so where do we go from here? Is that what we're thinking of, Michael? Mm -hmm. How is it that we move forward from here? Yeah, how do we address it? Um, you, you use the word dismantle it. Um, what, what, what are your thoughts? So my thoughts about that is really trying to tell those stories and to ask people who are engaged with systems and structures, people of privilege to talk about those things all of the time and to be uncomfortable. I think we are at a period, if we're going to try and use this inflection point to make change, everybody who can needs to be about it. Those of us who are not afraid to lose our jobs for one reason or another, we need to go on and bring it up and ask, when somebody bringing a train in here, what y'all doing about hiring some more people that look like different people 
why aren't the signs in two different languages? We need to bring up these issues. We need to decide that's important work and be about that work ourselves. Um, it's time consuming. It's exhausting. And ain't nobody paying you to do that. But perhaps as our forefathers would say, that's the price you pay for living this experience and being on this earth. That's the price you pay. Maybe we need to adopt those views as we try and move forward. Jamar? You know, just thinking about, you know, white supremacy and addressing it and dealing with it, you know, the, the thing that I guess I have, a, I have, you know, I guess my, my biggest fear with white supremacy is that I think that it will be, I, I, I'm afraid that, it, that, that, that the term white supremacy is going to be like the term diversity. You know, the last, you know, 10 or 15 years, I mean, people, you know, you, you know, they'll have a token equity and diversity officer. They'll do diversity trainings. And we have, we have been so, um, we've, we've heard, we've heard about diversity so much to where the term, the term is no longer potent. And I'm afraid that, that, that racism and white supremacy, I mean, very, very powerful, critical, you know, real terms. I'm afraid that they're, that, that, that they're going to lose their, they're going to lose their potency. Um, if we're not, if we're not careful. Um, I, and just to give you an example, um, I was, I, I was in a city council meeting and the, the, the council president is an African-American woman and there was another council person who is an African-American man, and he got upset with her and called her out and accused her of white supremacy. And I've never, you know, in a million years, I mean, I mean, you know, how can a black woman <laughs> perpetuate or, 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 or be complicit in white supremacy, you know? And so I think that we have to really kind of figure out, you know, are we, you know, when we talk about racism, and white supremacy, you know, are we are we articulating it right? And do we have any safeguards so that those terms are, don't lose their potency and consequently become demeaned and lose and lose value? And so, before I can answer your question, I just have to I have to reconcile and deal with that first. Mm-hmm. Michael. So, uh, brother Jamar, you. you that you ask, uh, I, I want to address the, the black person calling the other black person or, or mentioning uh, them being a white supremacist. Um, back in, in, in during slavery, there was a thing called mandatorious manumission. And uh, this was a concept where the slaves would uh, the slave would say, so if the master's house was burning, the slave would go, the, the slave would go put out the fire because our house was burning. Or you take the slave uh, who would say, if there was going to be a revolt, this slave would t- inform the master that they're going to revolt and that 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 slave would get favor or promoted or maybe they get freedom and they can get over slave they can they could they would get rewarded 
for letting the master know what was going to happen. And so a lot of times in our systems, there are people that are rewarded for selling out. Um, I, I, I've been in education 20 years, and I've, and I've always been I've always been one to push, ask the hard questions, or put. I'm, I'm, I'm asking the hard questions. I'm going to push and advocate for most of for most of my career. I've worked with first generation, low income students, and so I've always advocated or pushed for progress for for all people, but my people, and I've always been railroaded by that token Negro who was always positioned or who always made sure that he told what was going to happen because things were good for him. So we're rewarded. We're ex we're rewarded if we keep white supremacists in position. We're promoted. You can see it all. You look look in any industry. There 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 there's that there's that promotion of the sellout. <laughs> there's the if you decide to sell out, hey, you can get you can we'll advance you. But if you decide to be if you decide to be the one that's going to fight, see, it's all about staying in your place, and and that's that's what we're seeing in this current administration. We need y'all. The problem is, so let's go back. 2008, you have the election of the first African-American president. And so, uh, and, and what, you, what, what happens? House and, the House and the Senate come together and say, we're going to block everything. Why? Because we don't, because, because he, he railroaded the system. And, and got to a position that was never intended for a man of color to be in or a woman of color. So he got this. So for eight years, they fought everything he did. They fought. They, 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 instead of calling it the affordable health care, they want to call it the Obamacare. Because if, if we keep it as Obamacare, then we, it's all right if we kill it. Hmm. He gets out of position. And so, so then you see 2016, what happens? Angry. These these men are angry because this this Negro excels to a position that he's not supposed to excel. So you have you have the supporters of Trump who who were like, okay, listen, we're gonna fight this. So what Trump comes in, he does. So for his whole mission was to 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 wipe out anything that Obama did. That was his whole mission. Anything that he did. The Supreme Court, the Supreme Court did not go with him on killing affordable health care or the Obamacare. And so what he wanted, so what he tried to do was keep things in place. Because if we keep things in place, we can keep, you know, keep things in place. Just look at look at the wealth. Look at the wealth in the America. The true wealth is controlled by one to two percent. The haves. And they, they need to have nots to have not, <laughs> you know. And you, I mean, there was a lot that was done yeah. during that slavery time, you know. So even the whole concept of race, it, even the whole concept of the, the term race and white people, that whole that whole term was brought up to keep. So you had the rich or the elite, 
and then you had the the slaves who were indentured the, uh, or the uh, whites who were indentured servants, and then they were termed white. They were termed white, and anything that was white was better than being black. So then you have white. You, you so then you have you have the elite, the white, and the black. So the elite or the white become police workers, and they're better than black. And and that whole so that whole concept was in place to keep. I mean it, it's. This thing goes far and deep. Yes. It goes far and deep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I mean, Ellison said that I am standing puzzled, unable to decide whether the veil is really being lifted or lowered more firmly in place, whether I am witnessing a revelation or more efficient blinding. And I think that is so um right on with our discussion tonight as we battle with the idea of this America having an awakening and you see how complex just in our conversation today and I agree with Liz she makes a comment about Jamar raising a good point that the arts and humanities is key to telling the story because we realize is that especially in a social media environment uh, Jamar had mentioned this, too, about everyone having a platform but not having the information to communicate properly and this exchange of information. And, and now we have an attack on the very institution of truth. You know, what it's, it's, you know as a society, we, we're struggling with whether it's valuable to be truthful any longer. Wow. And so how do, you know, again, how do we, how, how do, are we changing? I mean, really, are we changing? And, and, and I'm, I'm wondering, I mean, if you have any comments, those who are uh, listening, I know uh, Professor Johnson has been uh, answering some of these questions as we go along. Uh, and R.D. Powell says the black athletes who initially criticized Kaepernick is a great example of that, and that's to what uh, Michael's point, uh, being rewarded for um, speaking against those who are standing up. Um, but where do we go from here? Mm. I mean, and, 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 and I think I don't want us to look at the, at the macro level mm. because that's too big. That's too – I want us to look – on the micro level, where can we go? Let's begin with the individual. Let's begin with the family. Let's begin with the community. Where do we go from here, Professor Johnson? So what I've decided to do at home is show my children eyes on the prize. They're eight videotapes, <laughs> and I think they make up 16 episodes. So my children have watched Eyes on the Prize. I think that that is critical to who we are as a people. When I was a kid, we watched Roots. Mm. But now we feel like we can't show Roots to our kids because somehow it's too horrible, it's too violent, although we let them watch all kind of other manner of things, right? But somehow they don't watch Roots. So I think watching Eyes on the Prize has been good for my children. 
when I have relationships with white people, um, if a little girl has a birthday, I'm going to buy her a doll that looks like somebody else. Mm -hmm. I give books when my friends have children and they are white people, Asian people, Hispanic people. I give them different language books, books that have characters that look like other people. This is my attempt to expand the horizon of other people that I come into contact with as an individual at a very micro level, one person at a time. And I don't shy away from the discussions of race in my interpersonal relationships because it comes up everywhere. I'm like that little kid who said he saw dead people. There was some movie and the little boy goes, I see dead people. That's how I am. I see race because it's everywhere about everything. So I talk about it all the time. That's what I think we can do on the micro level, just in our homes with our people, our colleagues, our friends, and our acquaintances. We need to be right there talking about it. And, and you know, I, I, I love how you, you talk about being proactive in that way. That's something that every individual can do. Uh, and that's not a lot of hard work. That's just being determined to do something um, on your local level. Um, Jamar, what about community? What about community? Wow, that's a very, very, very loaded, you know, loaded question. Well, I guess, you know, going back way back to our conversation with, with Dr. West, I mean, the one thing that he said that really resonated in terms of ac activating change and creating kind of an awakening is is very pragmatic, is a very pragmatic solution, you know, is to, is to just take what you have, the little platform that you have and, and, um, and use it. And so, you know, talking about community as a, as a, as a library professional, um, I've made it a point for the library to be an act, to be a part of the community, to have, um, and, and, and it had to have an active role in the community um, by engaging them in a very robust and, and prolific uh, manner. Um, one example of that is that, you know, here, here in Wilmington, Delaware, we, we are, you know, we're 57% black, um, but our community is very, very segregated. We have the haves and, and have nots. And so we had a, a, a black illustrator, you know, you know, come in early this year and, you know, of course you'd want him to go to the black schools and, engage the black kids but what we did is that there there are several private all-white parochial schools out in the countryside and so we we partnered with them and we sent this illustrator um we sent the illustrator there to to, to to those schools instead and it was just amazing at how the teachers um started following him on instagram and and facebook and it's just amazing at how um, their worldview was just changed by creating those kind of life transforming experiences. Um, and I'm just reminded of, you know, if you remember Malcolm X, how when Malcolm X, you know, made, made, made his pilgrimage to Mecca and um, engaged the Sunni Muslims and how his worldview, his worldview, his worldview changed, his worldview of Dr. King um, changed. And so what we do here in the city of Wilmington on a micro, on a micro level is we try to create experiences uh, to where people are in a position to where their, their worldview is, is challenged, um, 
changed, um, expanded. Uh, so, so yes, yeah, so I just think that each of us individually, we just take the little platform that we have, the little area, little space that we have, and we, and we, we use it. Absolutely. Absolutely. We have a comment uh, from um, uh, Sharon says, I agree to not shy away from race conversations with our white friends. Remember, they, too, have been miseducated. But I think it is so important to seek true knowledge for yourself before you can have an intelligent dialogue. I completely agree. We, you have to do the work yourself. And uh, by doing so, you can add to the body of knowledge. Uh, Brother Michael, your, your, your comments, you can, you can pick uh, on the personal level or on community. I, I think we're running from community. I'm going to go community. I'm going to go community. Um, community, I think we need to first establish a black community. Mm. There, there's a, there's, there, are, um, there are Asian communities. Go look at any city in America. There's the Asian district or the Asian town. There's Chinatown. Uh, there's Little Havana or there's Little Mexico. Um they're, they're LGBTQI communities. Where's the black community? Doesn't exist. Hmm. There's no, the black community, it does not exist. Uh, hmm. Any, go look, go look anywhere. This is where the blacks used to be. In Oklahoma, it used to be deep deuce. Well, they pushed, and so then they pushed, they expanded that border. Then they expanded it. Now, Deep Deuce is not black community. Um, um, I live in Kansas City. Um, 18th and Vine. Now we're trying to reclaim 18th and Vine. But then that, I mean, so it, we need to build community. So my, my girlfriend of 27 years sent me this text that I'm going to share. Establish black leadership. So... We have, you know, we finally mentioned no black leadership. I, I think black leadership has been silent. And, 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 and I, I think we have black leadership, but there's been the fear because our black leaders have been executed. Um, see, King, King was okay as long as he was talking the nonviolent stuff. He, but when he started talking about power and economics, they shot him down. Uh, they, they killed him. Right when he started talking about economics, so I, I think black, establishing black leadership, um, the black church used to be a strong. The black church used to be strong. Now it's almost non-existent. Mm. We 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 and 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 there are some of us that say we don't have a black church. We have a multicultural church. You know, we we so we try to shy away from. We try to shy away from real issues. So. Mm. Um, build white alliances. We, we, we need our white friends to confront racism, and that's uncomfortable. You know, when, go, go, you know well, I, I would say when you're at your Thanksgiving next week and the issue comes up, but, but we know that we're encouraged now to have small Thanksgiving, but maybe Christmas or New Year's when 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 the when the vaccine is out and you can have a large setting, confront the racism, deal with it, challenge 
your friends, challenge your loved ones, challenge your family, because we really need you to be our, you know, we can't think if we can do it all by ourselves. We need our, we need our white alliances. Uh, host like you're doing, host community forums. Um, we can't wait till they get to high school. See, these are things that need to happen in elementary. We, we need, it needs to happen in our black churches, in our communities. Um, again, tell our own story and not expect for somebody else to come in and tell our story. If we think that Tarzan or somebody is coming into our community to save us, we're sadly mistaken. It's not happening. So host community forums, build social service programs, um, you know, and, and so what happened? So you, you put, you put your black, you put these black boys at three and four and five on medication, then they become, then it's systemic. Then what happens? They, this medication leads and guides them. And then by the time they're 17 and 18, they go right into where they really want them to go, which is into the prison, which is a, another form of slavery. So we have to do, you know, build our own social programs and, and develop black resources. You know, um, if you look at Tulsa, Tulsa during the, or, or, or uh, Greenwood, the, that was the picture. They had their own communities, and so we've got to go back and start building our own communities. And then we, and then we've got to tell, we've got to inform our kids that it's not stop believing the lie that it's 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 okay to be smart. Where did this notion come in that to be if you're smart you're you're acting if you're if you're smart or if you if you articulate you're talking white or you're acting white? We've I mean. Man, they've done they've done they've done some things on our mind. We've got to go back and recondition our mind and recondition our thinking. Be, biblical, go back, be transformed. Be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So we've got to go back and renew some mindsets that we're more than enough, that we're good, changing the way that we think, changing the way that we see ourselves, and building our own things building our own communities. And I'm not saying we don't have alliances with, with whites and not saying that whites can't be a part, but we've got to build our own. You know, you talk about the Willie Lynch and some people say, well, maybe Willie Lynch, that wasn't really, but, but, but what, what was the, the concept of the message? If you teach them to hate each other, if you teach them to fight amongst each other, this thing, this thing will work for 300 years. So you got black men against black women. You got light-skinned men against dark-skinned men. You got the tall, thin, I mean, you, you pitch the differences and then if you pitch the differences, if you do this for one year, make them not trust, have them don't trust only you, they'll destroy each other. Mm -hmm. so, 17, so the Willie Lynch letter came out when 1712, uh, you know, we're, we're in 2020. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're, you know, uh, and then you, you, you build, you, build, you put us in, in ghettos and, and then so, you know, you never hear about white on white crime. You hear about black on black crime, but we know that's because we're in and, and we're isolated in locations, and 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 crime happens within a, within community mostly. So, but it's that renewing of that mind and, and making us really think and see differently and seeing our value. You know, we got to stop calling our women bees and hoes. It's and, and we. You know, we, we can't keep calling our women bees and hoes. My wife showed me this video of this boy. I'm sorry. My wife showed me this video, mm -hmm. and this guy, this girl had a flat tire. Um, 
and I think she was dating a gentleman out of her race. It was a black girl. Mm-hmm. And so these men went to these men that they passed, they stopped, and they confronted this situation. And they asked this man, why is your woman out here changing this tire? And he said, and, and he said, well, I'll call AAA. Well, why? And they confronted that issue. See, we got to go back and guard our own communities. Well, I, I think you bring up some very interesting points, and, and you brought up a, a whole conversation, a whole light bulb room conversation about the fragmentation of the black community. Yes. And when you talk about black community, there you, you identify many aspects of what is considered a community. And I think for so long we've looked at it only as being geographical space. For instance, the northeast side of Oklahoma is the black community. But it's not really a community. And so, and, and there's also a stigma in the idea when black people say we need to build our own community. Somehow it's, it's always seen as being exclusionary, right? But you can have an Asian community. You can have a, 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 you know, a Mexican community. You can have all these other communities, which, which is acceptable. But somehow in America, the stigmatization of black people even goes to the notion when we say we want to build our own community and we have to get away from that. There's nothing wrong with, with having an economic strategy for building black communities. And, uh, and so I think that whole kind of re, I think the conversation in which we talk about our experience here has to be changed because there's shame that even comes along with that. And, and it turns off our allies because they feel like that you excluding me from that. No, we're not because you go to you go to Greek town and get a meal, right? You go to Greek town and shop. We just want to have a black community that is celebrated just like every other community. And so we have to redefine uh, what those things mean as we move forward in this country. But and we yes, go ahead. I don't want to cut you off. No, no, no. It's great. However, we did just that in Oklahoma. Oklahoma had more black towns than any other place. We had black community. Self-sufficient, self-reliant, self-contained. And we didn't exclude anybody from coming, shopping, doing, moving through those communities. But when it got too good, too good looking, too good smelling for other people, (laughs) they burned those towns up. Yes. So we have to figure out how it is we separate ourselves from those very painful lessons. If you look at Oklahoma now, I think at the height of it, there might have been, I don't know, I don't want to overstate it because, you know, I'm not from here. I want to say 30 thriving black towns, and I think now we're down to six, right? So there are lots of reasons why we don't have black community. But one of them is the painful lesson, and not just in Oklahoma. You can see the story of Rosewood in Florida and many other places where there were black communities, and they were intentionally destroyed Mm -hmm. by racism, Mm -hmm. by jealousy, Mm -hmm. by this Mm -hmm. concept of keeping us in our place. And you cannot be in a diminished status when you have a town. That's so true. Uh, in our closing minutes here, uh, our panel has, has been so distinguished. I appreciate 
every word that's been spoken. Um, in our closing minutes, we know we will have, despite all of the efforts of the outgoing administration, <laughs> we, we're going to eventually get to a new one. Uh, because that's the American way, and it's going to go that way. Uh, but what what are you expecting from this, this Biden-Harris administration? And I, and I, and I always want to put this caveat to say that at a moment when we should be celebrating the first black Asian woman to be vice president, we are caught up in the muck of this stuff. And I don't want to lose sight of just how great it is to have Kamala Harris step into that position. We need to celebrate this because it's monumental. And so what are you expecting from um, this administration? Jamar? Well, I think the, I think the, the, the first thing that I'm expecting is, is that, I mean, this, this administration ran on the on the platform of unity and 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 equity and um, redemption, and so I hope I hope I hope we can look back four years from now and see some tangible some tangible fruit, um, and and no no red no rhetoric. I mean everybody. I was listening to Barbara Jordan's you know convention speech in 1992 at the Democratic National Convention, and you know they were talking about change, you know, in, um, in 1992. So I think that, I, I, I think, you know, you know, you know, two things I'm looking for is just, you know, some tangible fruit. And, you know, like I say, uh, the, 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 you, you know, with this, this victory, I mean, I mean, you know, we have to credit, credit to, to the, to the black folk in Detroit, Philadelphia, Milwaukee, Atlanta, they went out in droves. I mean, you go back to, Biden, you know, securing the nomination. If it wasn't for the black folk and Jim Clyburn in South Carolina, I mean, he, you know, so this Biden administration, they all, they all black people big time. They all black folk big time. And so I'd like to see, I'd like to see some kind of, some kind of payment. Um, But on another note, you know, which is a bit more sobering is that, you know, looking at just this whole idea of, of change is that, the uh, uh, brother, brother Michael was talking about the, the Willie, you know, the, the Willie uh, Lynch syndrome and, and the ramifications today. And you look at that was many, many years ago, and we're still suffering from that today. And so conversely, with change, I mean, the change that, that you that, that we want to see, you know, we, we have to probably accept the fact that we may not see these changes in our lifetime. Um but we have to sow the seeds and do the work so that maybe three or four generations down the line, they will see the change that we want to see. And so it's just, it, it, it's a bit discouraging and sobering to know that the work that we're doing, we may not, we may not see it in this lifetime, but, but somebody has to, somebody has to lay the foundation and somebody has to sow the, the, the seeds and somebody has to weather, um, you know, somebody has to weather weather the storm so that um, the future generations will have will have something to uh, something to build upon, something to see, um, some 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 kind of actualization. Uh, Dr. Johnson, I'm gonna come to you last because I I, I want to add something to the question with with you. So I want you to to close us out on this. So, Brother Michael. 
change. So will we? Will there be change? Um, and, and and conversations with my wife. Um, I, I I think that I think President Biden will probably go down as one of the greatest presidents ever. Wow. Hmm. Um, Biden, unlike Barack Obama, is gonna. Well, I mean, if you know, so if depending on how these two seats in Georgia go, he can have the House and the Senate. But even in that, I, I don't think that they'll fight him as mm-hmm. much as they fought Obama. Wow. We know they 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 just fought Obama. Mm-hmm. So I think with Biden, I think Biden is an ally. You know, so people say, well, he did 80s. You know what? Okay, that's. I think Biden is an ally. I think eight, those eight years of Barack. And then putting in the work, I think Biden is an ally. And then you you have president elect, I mean vice president, who is first woman, and and that shouldn't that shouldn't have even happened, but it did. And she's black and Asian, and that puts her in a that puts now little black girls, little Asian girls. Because little black boys, twelve years ago, thought, "Man, I can, I can. This is, this is possible." And so now you have these girls who like, not even just black girls, not even just Asian girls, even little white girls, even girls. Period, are gonna say, "Man, I can break this ceiling." Hmm. Then he builds. He's building his cabinet, and it's diverse. Hmm. And so he's an ally. And so I think that his, I think he'll go down as, I mean, I, I think he'll go down as probably one of the greatest presidents ever. Because, see, if, if he can, he's, he's the first white president to confront or discuss racism in America and dealing with it. And now he's in, posi- he's in position and some things can begin to change. And and I, I think I, man I I just believe I I pray to God that we can see this change really begin to take place. Um, you know this this current occupier is is fighting to keep things the same, but he got to go. He, he he's been fired. The American people have spoken, and he's been fired. And the new guy's coming in. The new sheriff is coming in, and I think he go. I think he's going to do some things. And, and I, I, I like that optimism and hope in your voice because all of us need to harness that. And uh, Professor Johnson, I want to I wanna preference this by a question from Lisa that says, and this is right in line with uh, what do you expect from uh, this administration. The question is 73 million people voted for white supremacy, half the country of, of, of really of, of uh, potential voters. That half is not going to change. Bipartisanship seems to be over with Republicans. Can we ever get to a United States with equality for all? So with that question in mind, what do you expect from a Biden-Harris administration? I think we should all have expectations and hope, particularly now because the bar is so low, right? So if you said, I just would like to hear some truth, 
that's a wonderful expectation. But if we want to talk a little bit about a higher level of expectations, a couple of things I jotted down was I want to see some civility, a return to civility and in the way we treat people. I hope to see representation and I hope there's a spirit of anti-oppression because I think we've been in the last four years of oppression in a lot of ways. So if we could get that, I think that that's really, really going a long, long way. There was an interesting article written in 2016. It's a popular news article, and it talked about people voting against their self-interest. Why would people Mm -hmm. vote for Trump when it was against the self-interest of so many? And the article suggests that I feel that way as a black woman because I don't understand what the self-interest is. Mm -hmm. The self-interest is indeed white supremacy. It's not about economics. It's not about the nation and where it goes, but it's white supremacy. So if we look at that as a reflection of the the 73 million votes Mm. that maybe weren't about white supremacy, but definitely weren't about equality, right? I worry. So I don't want to end on a negative note, but I worry whether or not race is actually an intractable problem. Mm. And if it is, What does that mean to us? Because Jamar said words that I'm just going to say they hurt my heart. And it was that maybe we won't see it in our lifetime because black people have been saying that for 400 years. Maybe it won't happen in my lifetime. And I know that the arc of justice is long and you can't see where it ends and we have to have the faith and we keep the faith and the struggle continues. But I worry if it is indeed an intractable problem, which is why we find ourselves at this crossroads again. Mm -hmm. What does that mean for how we protect black and brown people? I worry about that. So I hope that somebody somewhere is coming up with ways to protect us ways to make us safe, Mm -hmm. knowing that 73 million people are not really about equality. What does that mean? See, I knew I needed to give you the last word. (laughs) (laughs) But I want to say a very powerful discussion. And um, for a people that are trying to be visible in this country for the first time, not just um, on an economic level, on an opportunity level, but on a level of being human. And that's where we're at, this intersection in time. And, um, and I thank you for your, your, your words tonight because you describe not only the hope, but the challenges that we face. And it will not be easy And if we truly want to move this country in what I call creating a new America, Mm. it's going to take all of us um, to make this thing happen. So thank you so much. I appreciate all of you. And we will continue the conversation. Uh, Have a good night, folks. Thank you very much. Good night, everybody. Good night. Thank you, you, guys. (laughs) Good to meet you all. Yes. It's good to meet you too, Michael. <laughs> and Jamar, you too. Yes. <laughs> Bye-bye.
Thank you for downloading the One Mic, One Voice show. Take a moment and subscribe and share. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or any other podcasting platform. Thank you for your continued support and for your voice. You can change the world. It's your choice. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed on the One Mic, One Voice show are not the views, thoughts, and opinions of our sponsors.